This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. Equity Mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, G'day Legends, it's the Spin King here, and that's all I'm going to oh, say. Oh my God. <laughs> wow, the gusto and momentum of this ChatGPT translated intro is fading. Yeah, I think ChatGPT is losing it a bit. Uh, so are? Bryce, we're back for another episode of Equity Mates. You are Shane Warne. And let's uh, get into the episode and not dwell on that. That's it. <laughs> because we are here for uh, what's fast become one of our favorite types of episodes here at Equity Mates, and that is an ask and advisor. That's right, Ren. Today we have Luke Larative from Seneca Financial. It is the second last episode for the series, Ask and Advisor series for the year. As you said, it's been a it's been a series that has really resonated with the community and that's because a lot of the questions in the episode today come from the community. Yeah, so in this episode we're going to talk about building good financial habits, the things that Luke advises all of his clients to do regardless of who they are and where they are in their financial journey. We're going to talk about selecting the manager. There's a lot spoken about, a lot written about, about finding the right stock. There's a lot less spoken about around finding the right fund manager and super fund and ETF provider. So we're going to talk about that. And then finally, Bryce and Luke are going to go head to head about the merits of investing in Aussie large caps. Yes. <laughs> I don't actually know if you'll go head to head, but it'll uh, it'll be a good conversation. Yeah, a bit of a teaser there, Ren. Now, a reminder that while we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal circumstances. So any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general. Now, Bryce, before we get into it, two very exciting pieces of news as we close out the year. The first is that the third annual Equity Mates Awards are live. Uh, this is your chance to celebrate the people, the products and the platforms that have delivered for the retail investor in 2023. Uh, the link is in the show notes or head to any of our channels and, and you will see. Uh, but we will be announcing the winners of the Equity Mates Award on the very last episode of this year. So get your votes in and make your voice heard. And secondly, Bryce, just an important reminder as we get towards Christmas that we have both of our books, Get Started Investing and Don't Stress, Just Invest, ready and waiting. They form the perfect Christmas present for anyone in your life who wants to start 2024 off on the right financial foot. Um, so you can buy them wherever books are sold. If you buy them through our website, we'll sign them. That's a little Christmas bonus. Will we? You look a little bit surprised at that news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I haven't told you that yet, but uh, we'll sign them. Okay. Um, or you can buy them, you know, wherever books are sold. But anyway, with that said, let's uh, get ready for Luke. Luke, welcome to Equity Mates. Bryce. Ren, how Luke. are you? We're well. <laughs> we're well. We're excited to have you here. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And this is part of our Ask It Advisor series. So we've got some questions from the community, but we're going to, as I said, we've got a lot to get through. Let's start with a quick fire. And these are some of the questions that we get over and over and over again. And we'd love your thoughts on them. So to start with, investing in shares or paying off your mortgage? Mortgage rate 7%, man. So pay off your mortgage. It's not tax deductible debt. Get rid of it all. It's pretty simple, really. Nice. Like you're, you not, you're not going to get a better risk-adjusted return in the market. 
Easy. Didn't didn't your uh, your fund did more than uh, yeah, some like, after yeah, tax? Easy, easy, easy now, Ren. Easy, all right. Easy. <laughs> we're getting the promotional material later, mate. Don't okay. worry about it. All right. <laughs> all right. Second quick fire one, the one that we get all the time: investing inside or outside of super. Do you have to choose? Like both is the answer. Well, I mean, with every dollar, you have a choice. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can only get say. 25, 30 grand into super every year if you're working age. So, um, yeah, definitely do that first. Um, and then because it's like, you know, tax deferred and if you're going to save. But that being said, if you're saving for a goal like buying a house or, you know, doing something, starting a business or whatever it might be, then maybe, you know, saving in the markets um, outside of super is appropriate. Um, certainly, uh, like Claire and I save outside the outside the market uh, outside of super as well as inside super yeah mm. yeah mm. Nice. and then to close out what is the best way to invest for kids look i don't know the best way to invest for kids like it probably depends on the kids and how much you're talking about investing and there's lots of weird and wonderful ways you can structure things what i do for my nephews which is really simple is just in my own name i just have a nephew's account just designate it. it's just my just individual name very boring i put a thousand bucks in there every birthday for both the nephews um, and then I just invest 50% in my Aussie shares product and 50% in our global equity product. That's yeah, it. easy. Nice. Family yeah. group that account with all of my other accounts. So I play, pay one set of admin fees. Yeah, it's cheap to run. I get all the tax reporting done for me. Yes, I pay a little bit more tax every year for the grandkids, but it means that if one of them's a crackhead down the road, I don't want to give them the money. I have to, <laughs> yeah. right? So that's sort of like that's you know I've got control, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's also not I don't have to put it in his parents' name or you know like it's just simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the extra cost is worth the simplicity. Like the simplicity is worth the extra cost. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, so there's a couple of things we want to cover uh, in this interview. First of all, building good financial habits, the the stuff that you work with your uh, clients on. Then we want to talk about selecting the manager. There's a lot of conversations around selecting stocks but mm-hmm. far less on choosing the right manager. And then we want to close out with some conversations around Australian shares. Um, but let's start at the very beginning, building good financial habits. When you meet a new client or maybe the kids of a client uh, gets ushered into a meeting uh, to, to start building some good habits, what are, what are the first things that you, you work with a client on, the, those early habits? I, th- I think with a, with a new client, just want to build the appreciation for uh, the markets being a sort of zero-sum adversarial kind of uh, place. Um, I kind of use the boxing boxing kind of analogy, like the other side of the ring, Mike Tyson standing there gritting his teeth and with his gloves on. Do you really want to get in that boxing ring? And whether that's employing someone to help you to box on your behalf, who's trained and, and, and serious about boxing, or that's just not trying to box at all and, and do something that's more passive and, and simple, like you guys kind of recommend all the time. I think they're both fine strategies um, and pretty... Uh, you know, both pretty easy to employ. Uh, it's just a question of your preferences and, and how you like to go about things. Obviously, I'm an advisor. You know, I want people to employ me uh, and hopefully we can do a good job for people and make it worthwhile to employ someone like me. Um, but that being said, you know, I think a passive strategy works really well as well. So, yeah, just trying to bring that appreciation and for them not to treat their share portfolio or their investments like gambling. You know, I think there's a real habit and a lot of companies try and kind of gamify things and make it uh, really attractive um, and interesting and make you feel like you're important, especially blokes. Like they get really get after that kind of gambling, I'm smart type mentality. And I think, you know, having done this for a little while now, definitely just appreciating how dumb you are all the time is kind of a, you know, a, a key edge. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> we, uh, we won't say the sponsor. So we have, a, yeah, this, we have yeah. a hard rule, no gambling sponsors. Yeah. Um, uh, but they always are reaching out. And one of the gambling sponsors reached out recently and they wanted to do a campaign why gambling is like investing. 
Oh boy. <laughs> I know. Well, 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 it, there, is, there is. No, there's not. No, no, no let's no, not go no, there. No, let's no, not go there. Look, I can do it if you want to do no, it. We don't want to do <laughs> it. Okay, good, good, good. So, so then uh, let's uh, move on from, I guess, the habits. And that was really mindset, like, you know, zero sum, you know. Every time you're buying something, someone's selling. Both yeah. people think they're right, and the market will decide who's right in the long term. So once you've got the mindset and the habits conversation out of the way, what are some of the basic structures, building blocks, um, accounts, whatever it is? What are, what are some of the things that you start with with a new advice client? Yeah, I think so. You know, I advise high net worth families who are generally business owners, business operators, or ex-business owners and business operators. So, you know, I'm not working for every segment of the market. So as I said, it's sort of a little bit different, differentiated depending on who you're talking to. Um, I think a lot of the, the clients that come to me these days are actually coming from other advice businesses. I actually get most of my business, my new inbound business from, you know, accountants who have no business you know, making investment recommendations, churn and burn stockbrokers, or, you know, just other people paying too much in an investment bank somewhere. So um, I think at the end of the day, that's sort of my, they're often set up with structures. They're often set up with a, a reasonable plan. It's not that they've been given necessarily bad advice, but maybe just the execution of the advice has been pretty average or they're not happy with the service. So uh, just figuring out, you know, if they've got the right structures in place, you know, trusts and, and self-managed super, if that's the things they need or, um, you know, investing in the most tax efficient way. It's kind of the first port of call. And then once we figured that out, it's like making sure those, investments map to, to the goals that they've stated. I think a lot of the time people have got, um, you know, a disparate mix of goals, but a lot of the time people just want to either maximise return for an agreed level of risk or, um, you know, minimise risk to achieve a specific level of return. So they're sort of two kind of optimizations that you can do for a client. And once we've sort of figured out what bucket the client sits in, are they a, a sort of a risk minimizer, uh, max return, or are they up in the other? Um, it becomes pretty simple to sort of design a portfolio that's going to meet those objectives or hopefully maybe exceed them even. So yeah, that's sort of how, how we do it in terms of a sort of a framework for, for each client. And then from there, you know, because we run managed accounts, because we do all the investing for clients, um, everything else pretty much takes care of itself. We've just got to make sure client doesn't get, you know, too far away from their sort of strategic asset allocation and um, and subsequently too far away from their sort of goals and tracking to target. For a couple, what's the what what would you say the uh, amount needed is to justify um, self-managed super? Ooh, I'm actually not a big advocate for self-managed super okay. at all. I think if you're, you know, really into investing in property um, and you want to buy in self-managed super and um, there's other things you want to do with, with your super, then self-managed becomes sort of, you know, much more viable mm-hmm. or needed. Um, I think with investment platforms these days, you know, if you just want to control your the way that your super is invested, I mean, you can just roll your money into premium and you can have you yeah. know, all of the control mm-hmm. that you want, you yeah. know. So I don't really understand, unless you're going to punt your super on, you know, micro caps and taking placements, which, you know, I probably wouldn't. Yes. recommend to the average couple, yeah. um, you know, I, I would be very surprised if the approved product list of any platform, you know, we use premium, but whether it's NetWealth or Hub or, you know, probably any of the others that are out there on, from the major banks, I think, yeah, it's a, you know, pretty surprised if you didn't have everything you kind of needed to, to mm. make a to make and run a pretty successful mm. investment portfolio. Well, we have ours in Superhero, which has that functionality. Obviously, it's not as diverse <laughs> no as, it's not as, diverse yeah. as premium, but yeah. they have a... a 
a list of it's an approved know, list. Pr- yeah, it's managed exactly. investment schemes. Managed Look, the, yeah. the structures are all much the same, right? Whether it's a sort of an IDPS structure or a, or a managed investment scheme, which is what Superhero is, um, you know. These things are essentially a regulated trust where you get your little sleeve and you can buy anything that the trust says yeah. is okay. Yeah. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Is there anything you disagree with the majority of your advisor peers? You know the answer to this question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have to include this uh, question because we know you've got strong opinions, Luke. So, um, so like, where do you want me to start? But the look, I, I have lots of uh, gripes with this industry. You know, whether it's financial advisors advising business owners on how to buy businesses and yet they've never actually worked or run a business, you know, is sort of, I find always quite baffling that successful business owners want to take advice from people like that. I, I always find it interesting that, you know, fund managers run around espousing the the benefits and, and the outperformance potential of a founder-led business, yet don't own a single share in the funds management business that they work for. Yeah. Um, you know, it's <laughs> like, to me, uh, yeah. you know, there's just so many little paradoxes in the industry that don't make sense. I think from, from a, a client's perspective and the things that I sort of have seen recently and I'm a bit worried about, it's a lot of this alternatives product that's out there, particularly unlisted alternatives. Um, I think liquidity is going to become a, a, a real concern over the next you know, 12 and 24 months with rates of staying higher for longer. Um, and I think a lot of this product isn't fairly marked to market. Um, and what I mean by that is it's the price that you get on your report at the end of the month isn't a fair representation of the price if you were actually to go to market and sell that asset. So... You know, uh, I think whether it's the the private credit stuff, the unlisted VC and PE stuff, uh, you know, there's a there's a range of product out there that's you know that's pretty various and spread in quality. But I, I am concerned that there's been a lot of money going into this stuff over the last few years as we've had this sort of zero rates environment and the hunt for yield and aging populations and blah blah blah. And you know, it's going to want to come out or it's going to be trapped. And I don't, you know, I don't really see a reason why it goes in there in the first place. You can achieve the same sort of low or no volatility, uh, low correlation um, product uh, returns from, from liquid investments. There, there are out there strategies that deliver those sort of similar numbers. So yeah, I think it's a bit of a advisor sleight of hand. You know, you get a client, you put him in a five or seven year lockup fund, that client's going to be tied then to your ongoing fees. They're going to be tied into that product. They can only access that product through you. And it's an easy way to, to sort of keep the client engaged with you and not leave. So, you know, from my perspective, we really like the the liquid alternative space. Uh, have a strong preference for, for liquid investments over over illiquid investments. I know there's a premium there. I know the story. Like I can do, I've, you know, yes, I'm aware. But I just think that you can achieve almost, if not as good returns without um, tying your dough up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. While we're talking about the industry, when we were prepping for this interview, you mentioned you could talk about the dark secrets of financial advice and funds management industry. And how could we not uh, take you up on that opportunity? So what are some of these dark secrets? Oh, I don't know if they're dark secrets. I just, I, like I said, I just think there's some, uh, some things that don't quite make a lot of sense if you can kind of step back and think about them. Uh, I think there's a lot of active managers out there that, that don't really take any active risk. You know, they're not actually, the, the tracking error is, you know, minimal. I, I think... Like I said, there's some pretty high fee, you know, alternative product that people are ripping really good livings out of and clients aren't making a lot of dough. I think there's 
a lot of funds that espouse their short selling ability, yet they only short sell two or up to you know ten percent of their their book at any given time. And and when they do do it, it's actually a negative to like draws away from their app performance, doesn't add to it. So I think you know they're just really using. So are we short so we can charge more fees? You know, it's they're not but they're not actually using it if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of sleight of hand, maybe not dark secrets, but sleight of hand that we see. And I think when it comes down to you know selecting managers and and trying to build multi-asset portfolios and 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 manage people's money, you know, understanding how to assess a product against a comparable product and not compare it to something that you shouldn't be comparing it to and also not expect returns or, or, or results that, that that kind of product's not realistically going to deliver, I think is kind of half the battle. And that's mm-hmm. where I think a lot of people go wrong and why they're sort of flipping between products all the time and, and changing strategies is so they chase these, you know, return trailing returns or, or, you know, periods of return. When in reality, they should just be, you know, finding something that kind of works for them and then just sort of changing around the edges. Mm, mm. Well, that's a good segue into our next section, which is all about actually selecting fund managers. Uh-huh. We speak a lot on the show about selecting individual stocks. Uh-huh. We're really good at that. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we speak far less about f- selecting fund managers. Ren and, I, Ren and I both are invested in funds, as are a lot of the community. But yep. let's start with the, the top. Why is it an important conversation to have around the, the you know, actually the process of selecting fund managers? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of naive to think that, you know, uh, you're going to be an outperforming manager or any firm's going to be an outperforming, you know, firm in every asset class. Mm. And, like, you know, we know that the only free lunch in finance is diversification. So if you're going to be diversified, you're going to have exposure to equities, Australian equities, global equities, you know, uh, investment grade debt, sub-investment grade debt, you know, some alternative strategies... I think if you think you're going to do all of that well at the same time, you're kidding yourself. So you need to be able to say, I might be able to do sleeve A and B well, but I can't do C, D and F well. So um, I think, uh, you know, having that um, uh, framework and and thinking about uh, you're going to have this broad suite, can't do it all well, you need to be able to find other people who can do it well for you. Um, And I think uh, when you're trying to select a manager, you just want to be have a really clear understanding of what you're looking for. I think that's, half, like I said, half the battle is just f- figuring out, okay, what role do I, am I trying to fill in this team of people who are trying to solve problems? You know, you shouldn't be comparing, you know, an emerging markets manager to a, to a developed markets manager or a large cap manager to a small cap manager or a fixed income manager to someone, you know, like it's not just about chasing the highest returns and trying to build this, you know, Goldilocks portfolio of assets that just do well all the time regardless. I think it's about finding balance, making sure that you're not taking away by adding something else um, and certainly uh, trying to find something that, that fits your sort of risk profile and stage of life and is going to give you the type of return profile that, you know, you're looking for. I think in our situation, well, in mine anyway, and we've spoken about this over the last few weeks, having interviewed fund managers in emerging markets and small caps, like that's where I see the benefit, the role to play for, for me personally is in that space. Like I don't need a, a large cap Australian funds you do. You need, me to be, you need me to be your large-scale no, 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 no offence. No offence. We'll get to that. No yeah. offence. You do plenty of other good things. But, um, <laughs> I'm not talking about like, other services that I offer to you, Russ. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? A large-cap US equities, for yeah. example. Um, it's the small-cap space that 
um, I think it becomes interesting for me or the emerging markets where you can really uh, take advantage of the, the expertise in that space. So I think you've also got to appreciate that some markets offer more alpha opportunity. So, you know, if you're a top quartile ASX two or 300 benchmarked, you know, uh, fund manager and you're looking at the, the best over 10 or 15 years, you're looking at like 2 3% alpha after fees per annum. So you look at Aussie Smalls over the last five years, we did some analysis when we launched our small cap fund and of like the 97 managers in our peer group that we looked at, the top quartile beat the market over five years by 8% per annum. Yeah, wow. wow. That's just top quarter. So there's yeah. like 20-odd 20, 20 managers there that are beating an average among that top quartile. Mm. So um, I think having a clear understanding, like I said, of what the, mm. what it's going to fill in your portfolio, yeah. I think emerging markets is a really good example. Um, the benchmark is has got a lot of exposure to China. Um, and, and maybe if you want to buy a manager, I mean, who's got more – or exposure to say, you know, the Middle East or to India or to South America. Like these are sort of, um, you know, opportunities, I suppose, to, to outperform. And even if they're not necessarily generate higher returns, they can generate similar returns for a lot less risk. Yeah. Or they can generate similar returns and you sleep a lot better at night knowing that the financials that you're reading about the companies that you're invested in aren't actually legit. Are, are, are kosher. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So aren't just a black box and someone's yeah. just sort of thrown it at the board and, and hope that it, you know, no one notices. So, um, yeah, you, I agree with you that there's certainly opportunities for, for alpha in different markets um, and, and they're a varying scale. Um, but, look, from my perspective, um, you know, I think there's times where passive works better than active uh, and, and we're certainly agnostic, you know, in the way that we do things at Seneca. Um but yeah, as a general as a general comment, we probably invested a lot more with active managers than we are with passive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of a we we all see the role of active management. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, active fund managers in Australia, all trying to get our money. Um, how do we go about separating the wheat from the chaff? How do we uh, find those good managers? How do we assess them? Um, and then once we're in them, how do we monitor them ongoing? So, like, what's what's the process to, to make sure we're getting the best of the best? Um, look, the, the way we do it um, at Seneca is, I suppose, just not trying not to focus too much on trailing returns. I think everybody gets caught up on what managers have done. Um, even me, you know, first thing people mention, oh, what are your returns? You know, like, that's kind of just nature. But I, I think at the end of the day, understanding what, st- like, what the style of the manager is, what, what their, you know, objectives are, what their benchmarks are, comparing managers who have got similar benchmarks, similar styles, um, operating in similar markets. Um, you know, it's pretty useless to compare. I saw the, I think it was the Mercer survey came out recently and the best performing manager in the country last year was a geared strategy. It's like... Yeah, of course. No yeah. shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, a, like it's, a, it's not... That's not telling anyone anything. That's just saying that, oh, guess what? It was geared, geared and a concentrated with a top three. So it's like, well, duh, when the markets go up, if you've got high beta, you're going to win. Like that's just the, the nature of it. So being able to equalise for things like, you know, beta, being able to equalise for things like volatility, being able to think about things, um, you know, not just what's happened, but okay, is this manager likely to keep outperforming based on our views of the world and, and how things are changing? Um, so yeah, they're the sort of things that we try and focus on. Um, it's probably a bit sort of asset class specific and even like sub-asset class specific. So I think to give you some steps, like I wrote that article for Livewire, um, which people can go check out, which we'll, talks about Australian, can, Australian equities. We'll include that in the show notes. For each strategy, so let's take um, large cap Aussie. Yeah. Um, 
is there a right number of managers for each strategy? Like, yeah. do you just want one or like? So we run four to eight managers in each asset class. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so in our, in, in large cap Aussie or in, in Aussie Australian equities at any given time, we'll probably run two what we call core managers and that'll be like 50 to sort of 80% of the allocation depending on our views of the world. And then we'll normally throw in the other, you know, 20 to 50% will be small cap managers or specialist strategies or, or other kind of non-core strategies. And that's just Australian equities. And then you're kind of going through like yeah, global yeah. equities will have an emerging markets manager. They'll probably have a large cap developed manager. They'll probably have a small cap specialist. You know, we might look for an Asia specialist or Europe specialist or it might be like more small cap exposure, but a value, you know, more of a value type strategy versus a growth strategy. Um, it all, you know, you've got a lot of levers to pull in global equity. You know, you can work down to our defensive income portfolio. We're not just going to be running, you know, diversified global bond strategies. We might have a couple of Australian specialists in there. We might have a long duration and no duration strategy. Like there's lots of different ways, govies versus, you so know, how, taking credit how, risk. So rolling it all up, how yeah. many funds or fund managers do you have at any one time? So at the moment, the depends what like the client's asset allocation is. Yeah, yeah. If they've got, um, say, like a basic balance, port, sort of yeah. balance type portfolio with us, they'll have five managed accounts. So at the moment, that would be, there's eight managers in uh, alts. There's six, six, like sort of average of five, so 25, 30 managers. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, in yeah. a multi-asset strategy. So yeah. it looks much more like a what you would see a super fund or an asset consultant recommend mm. um, and a lot less what like a stockbroker would recommend to you mm. with like yeah, 10, yeah. 10 or 12 stock portfolio. Yeah. Like it's just, but when you're dealing with tens of millions of dollars, bro, you can't just whack it in 10 stocks and pretend it's diversified. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just absolute Fugazi bullshit. <laughs> so, you know, like, it's, it, like it is, like, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, that's uh, interesting. Well, step one, get tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. then we'll have yeah. 30 managers. <laughs> yeah. Look, even a smaller portfolio, like the beauty of platforms, the beauty of like not paying brokerage, the beauty of being able to, you know, you can invest three grand into some of these each. You could be doing this with 150 grand. It would mm. work perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, the reality is, is that people are so, oh, I don't have enough leverage. I don't have enough. It's not sexy enough. No, that's you being bored. That's you being, you treating it. You want a kick out of it. Mm. It's supposed to be boring. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. supposed to annoy you. Like yeah. it's supposed to not make you feel good about it. And then yeah. you look back in 20 years and you might. Yeah. So to close out before we move on to specific stocks, Luke, how you mentioned there, you know, some people fall into the trap of flip-flopping between managers and getting frustrated and chas yeah. chasing short-term returns. So how regularly are you reviewing your managers and I guess trying to avoid that short-term, you haven't beaten the market this year? Yeah, and I guess, I guess like the the what is flip-flopping and then what is actually subbing out an underperforming yeah. manager? Because I reckon there would be some managers that have thrived on the, you got to be long-term even though they just continue to underperform. And I've been in funds too long that have underperformed. Not my, like, not my fund, bro. Not your fund. <laughs> not your fund. I think everyone would know which fund it is. But um, Yeah, you've spoken about it before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Being in the, and underperform, 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 underperform. And you're kind of in there being like, oh, long-term market, seven years, whatever, long, longer-term mm. turnaround and... Then eventually, then eventually yeah. you just you just like no. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think our process is we meet monthly. Uh, most funds have got weekly or daily liquidity on a platform, so we could do it more. But we think monthly is a good thing. Do we make changes every month? No. I would say we make changes to one of the portfolios, bearing in mind we've got five multi-manager portfolios that we're we're looking at, as well as the two direct share portfolios that we run in-house. But the those five, you know, we might change something every one or two months across five. But, you know, most recently we've just 
like dialed up the yield on our aggressive income portfolio by adding more duration. So that's like, you know, over a 10% yield on that product now. Um, and, you know, we've sort of taken a more of a view that like bonds aren't going to get much worse. So, you know, we think they're at 30 year lows and, and so we're adding duration to our portfolios and, you know, different credit risk in our aggressive and our defensive income and, and different profile, but nonetheless, yeah, more duration. So that, they're the kind of things that happen at IC on a month to month basis. In terms of like, when do you get rid of someone or what's flip-flopping? I think if you don't have a process, you're flip-flopping. Right. Like if you don't have a if you if you're not if it's not there solving a need for you and you're not comparing that to alternatives that you have available to you that are comparable and not just saying, well, I could have done better in, well that that's not really a thing. You know, if you've got a an Australian equities manager and they're, you know, got relatively low tracking error and they're a index plus two type sort of manager, not some eight stock portfolio or some geared thing where you're trying to really shoot the lights out or some, you know, micro cap manager. You know, if you look at all the other managers in that peer group and they're consistently in the top quartile or, you know, in the top half over any sort of medium term period, you know, that's going to be a, they're a pretty good manager. Mm. Like, and doesn't mean they're always going to outperform. Outperformance from, from active tends to come in big spurts. So what happens is, is you have um, periods, the best managers, uh, well, like I could talk about smalls because I've just done a lot of work on it. So in a drawdown, average Australian small cap manager, top quartile goes down like 35%. Bottom quartile, 35%. Exactly the same. Yeah. same. Same volatility numbers, same pretty much on every metric. The only difference is, is a max gain on the fund. So like when the markets are good, who makes more money? A bad manager makes 30%, a good manager makes 55%. Yeah, That's it. Okay. So the, 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 the reality is it's more about like making hay while the sun's shining yeah. and then dying less. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're going to get beat up. Markets are going to beat you. You're going to have periods, you know, three, six months, 12 months of underperformance. It's not unusual in active, but the, the key thing is to say, okay, has this manager been able to make money well, and more money when, yeah. th when stuff's going well? Yeah. And that's where everyone, so like right now, everyone will go out of the market, you'll see these outflows out of every manager. Everyone's like, oh, the market's going down, I'm going to get back in when it goes, and then they miss the rip, yeah. and then they're on the back, and then, they get, yeah. then they're back on the cycle again. So it's just a, um, yeah, it is, it is really frustrating for me because you see people sort of get in their own way. Mm, yeah, I think the, the key thing that I'm hearing uh, in a lot of these answers about selecting the manager is doing the work to have a really clear understanding of the different types of managers. And even if they're investing in similar markets or similar products, like knowing like what their strategy is. So, uh, and then uh, comparing them against each other rather than comparing them to like the overall market. Or, and when they yeah. say founder led, you're going to ask them how many shares they own in the company they work for. <laughs> that's the question. That's the, that's the that's question. A, yeah, it's a fair. You know, like, yeah. like, like, are you founder led? You yeah. know, like that's kind of the. <laughs> it's certainly it's it's definitely one of the big buzzwords of. Uh, oh, it's, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, Luke, uh, Bryce uh, had some things to say about active management in Australian large caps. Yes. So we want to get to that. Um, I want to moderate the debate between the two of you. I'm but, kicking him under the table. <laughs> uh, but before then, we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Uh, welcome back to Equity Mates. We're talking with Luke Larrative from Seneca Financial Solutions. Uh, we've spoken about building good financial habits. We've spoken about selecting fund managers and the, the process that Luke goes through uh, to build, I guess, portfolios of fund managers. Um, now we want to turn to Australian shares because uh, as well as being an advisor, you also run two funds, um, the Seneca Australian Shares SMA uh, and then the Seneca Small Australian Small Cap Fund. You've done have well. I got, have I got that name right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brainwashed. Uh, <laughs> um, and Aussie large caps like, you know, the ASX 200, ASX 300, often seen as boring, often overlooked. You, Seneca Australian Shares SMA invests in 20 to 40 companies from the ASX 200. Bryce doesn't think that's worth it. So make the case for us, for Aussie large caps. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, there is less opportunity for alpha in large caps globally because the number of people who look at it. So I think when choosing a manager and uh, in large, you kind of want to go with the style of manager that you like. Um, and then if, you gener- if they're generating, if they're at least covering their, paying their way in terms of, you know, not being too far under benchmark, not being too far over benchmark after fees, um, I think it's well worth it because like I said, there are periods of time when you're going to pick up some extra returns in my experience if you with a top quartile manager. So uh, our product, like you said, uh, we're focused on, on kind of quality growth businesses at reasonable prices. Um, it's a very common trope that people run. So it's kind of more the way that we like to do it. You know, being a, a kind of business owner and coming from industry, not sort of just, you know, working my way up inside financial services. I think, you know, we look at things through a sort of an ownership sort of approach. We think about things in a, in a sort of like we own these businesses a little bit more, probably a little bit more of a long-term focus, a little bit more patient. And because I don't have a boss and I own the business, I don't have to worry about my quarter to quarter performance or my bonus next year. So, you know, it's a little bit of a different sort of approach in the way that we, we invest. Certainly, you know, we've done okay, uh, you know, sort of since we started this three and a half years ago, I think to June 30, our numbers were, you know, sort of 14% per annum, beating the index by two, almost 3% After before, uh, before fees. So, but our product, our clients don't pay fees. It's a zero fee product for our clients. True. Well, then so that is only, after fees. It is. That, well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, well, you know, how do you want to compare it? Like, do you want to count your advice fees? Because wherever you go, you're going to pay for advice. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. you know, at Seneca, you just get two for one kind of thing. Yeah. But look, it's a, uh, you know, I think that Aussie equities, uh, the Australian market's really bifurcated between kind of resources and banks. And I think you'll find that, you know, uh, most managers are kind of, their alphas tied to either the sort of XJR, the resources index, or the XJI, the industrials index. So it's more about their style than it is anything else. And I think, well, look, we tend to avoid um, investing in resources a lot. We do do it, don't get me wrong. It's, I'm not saying it, but it's not our, it's generally not a huge source of alpha for us unless it's something like lithium where we see a structural trend and we're kind of, um, we've been making money out of that. So, uh, yeah, they're the kind of, um, I suppose, that's the kind of the case is if you don't want to invest in just banks and just resources and just a really kind of concentrated name of sort of 18 companies, which are the majority of the index, buying an ETF at the ASX 200 level to me uh, doesn't actually give me a representative sample of the Australian economy. So even if you're playing sort of like long-term profits and the kind of ETF argument, you're not actually getting it from the index. And sure, you can go and buy an equal weight, but then I think you're buying too much junk at the bottom. Like we've done heaps of work on the inclusions, exclusions of the ASX 200, and there's just so much unprofitable, zero revenue stuff that comes into the index. And you end up putting, if you're in the equal weight, you know, two and a half percent of your portfolio in it. Look, I'm, um, I'm a real proponent for active in, in the ASX 200 because of the construction of the index. And I think that's the key driver of alpha, both in, in large and smalls in this country, to be honest. 
So Luke, we've got two companies that we want to get your thoughts on. The first is Alchem. Allchem, yeah. Allchem. <laughs> Ticker is A-K-E. And the second is Pexa. Ticker is P-X-A. So let's start with Allchem. What is the company and what's the investment thesis? I'm going to do this super quick for you. So they do lithium, they do hard rock, they do brine. The company's valued for the hard rock assets only. No one values the brines. They're wrong. It's too cheap. Yeah, that's why. Nice. This is a new format that we should yeah, introduce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stock pitch in 25 words or less. Yeah, yeah. so... so uh, undervalued assets there. Mispriced because everyone like doesn't really understand brines. I've done, can I say, shitloads of work on brines. You just yeah, said yeah. So it. Go and, go and read um, you know, my stuff on brines. I've written lots and I know it backwards and... Yeah, the market just misses, doesn't understand it. I went to Perth just last week and like, they're just obsessed with hard rock over there and they don't really understand brines at all. So the market doesn't price them. They got some of the best best brine assets in the world. Is the brine in Australia or? No, it's in South America. Okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, I, I just think it's a geographic kink of the ASX. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Fascinating. Um, all right. Well, do, do we want to follow up or are we good with that? That was good. <laughs> well, hey, look, it, tra- it trades at like 11 bucks a share. It's like $18 stock. Like, just, okay. Love it. Um, and then the second, <laughs> the second company that uh, we mentioned was Pexa, P-X-A. Yeah. Um, people may not be familiar with it. Uh, so quickly what it is and then why you like it. Okay, so Bryce bought a house. Like when you buy a house, you have to do like conveyancing and like you change the title and like Pexa do the settlement and the title. Yeah, well, that's you, where I recognise it you, from. The, yeah. The solicitors like Solicitor. they'll set you up in yeah. Pexa. The, but he, because the house is older than the 1980s, it's been an absolute nightmare a for him. Nightmare. Because he's still got paper-based conveyancing for title. And probably the bank were trying to figure out, find enough money for him to actually to transfer the money for him. It's a <laughs> seventy million dollar house he's bought. No, no, uh, the, uh, so I think, look, so, so that's what they do. They do um, digitised property settlements. Essentially, in Australia, they've got like ninety plus percent market share. Like it's the it's it, right? They, well, it was it was created by all the banks, wasn't it? And yeah, like and the then it got spun, right? To, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, it's like the definition of a monopoly. It's a, it is a monopoly, yeah, yeah. right? Monopoly business in Australia. Australian business is going fine, but obviously, like property settlements in Australia, um, have kind of like declined a bit. The people aren't buying as many properties. Volumes are low. We hear about all this stuff all the time. You know, mortgage cliff, blah blah blah. So the price went down quite a bit, and so Benny and I had a look at it, and it, it looked too cheap. Essentially, it's just priced for the Australian monopoly now. So a bit like Allcam, um, we think that the chance of the UK not digitising their settlement system the same way we have here in Australia, given similar legal frameworks, similar kind of, you know, legal history and, and the way they do things over there is quite pretty much the same. We, we think PEXA can win in that market, at least some market share. Good, good like green shoots already. They're kind of doing pretty well. And yeah, we reckon if they can win there, it's a much bigger market than what they've got here. Um, if they win the UK and become the same as here, that it's multiples of the current share price. But even if they don't, just like a few modest assumptions and you can see a pretty nice uh, change, step change in the earnings. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with it. It, feel, it feels like a real winner-takes-all market. Like, uh, Look, I don't necessarily agree, but okay. I, I think that... Um, uh, it's, I think if you can be the winner, like winner take all, take yeah. take all. But yeah. um, there might be two. The UK is pretty big. Yeah, they um, just, and they just bought a company in the UK, didn't they? Yeah, they're yeah. buying a few things, and you know, uh, market always suss on when they people buy stuff internationally, yeah. uh, especially for the first time, or you know, stepping out over there. And you know, there's other companies there you can look at that have been a bit of a graveyard. Well, um, I, I've been burnt. So Slater and Gordon, they made their UK acquisition, and I lost all my money. That's on that. called being a criminal. <laughs> That's a different a different story <laughs> as, altogether. As, as we said, very good. <laughs> 
Moving yeah, stocks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, Elite um, operators here at Equity Mates. Yeah. <laughs> then when I was working at Coles, which was owned by West Farmers, I saw their experience of trying to do the Bunnings UK and yes. try and extend over there, which uh, didn't really work. Nope. So I'm always a bit sceptical on Aussie businesses going to the UK. I think um, it's fine. I think you're right. There's a lot of a, a lot of risk with some of these physical things. Um, I think software is a little bit easier, um, a little bit more malleable as a business unit. You know, you can change a software business a little bit quicker and easier. Um, and certainly, uh, once you do have those relationships with the like the solicitors and the people who are working in the property sector, they're unlikely to change. Yeah. So, um, you know, whether it's uh, we've seen that you know across a range of other kind of you know SaaS type businesses, and I wouldn't say that Pex is necessarily a SaaS business, but certainly it's got really nice, steady, recurring revenues. And yeah, so we like Pexa. Nice. Love it. Well, we didn't have a heap of time, but I feel like you gave a, a pretty good accounting of uh, both companies. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. We could shorten all of <laughs> these. As my business says, quick and dirty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Luke, thank you so much. That brings us to the end. We do really appreciate it. If you want more information on Seneca Financial, uh, we'll include links in the show notes, but the website's senecafs.com.au. Luke is uh, always available to have a chat. Um, but we do really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, gentlemen, as always. <laughs> You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.